You're not just putting a rainbow flag on your site, but also for a lot of us, it's, it is a, as I said, the act itself, the, the, the experience itself is something that they want to be positive. You know, for, I don't think that a lot of infertility patients think of this to be something that they want to put in a picture album later and go over, but we do. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. On today's episode, I talked to Ron Poole Dian. He's the founder of Men Having Babies. You may have heard of that organization. They have events all over the world for prospective same-sex fathers. Many clinics, many agencies, many groups want to compete for same-sex males in particular, as well as LGBTQ plus patients at large. So we talk about some strategies for that. Ron is a marketing and business strategy professional. He founded Men Having Babies out of a need that after he and his husband, Greg, were among the first same-sex couples in the nation to father kids through surrogacy. Their twins are more than, are 20 years old today, or almost. They conceived them with donated eggs from a relative and they were carried by a gestational carrier. And Ron saw a need in the marketplace. That's a need that many people are competing for nowadays. So we talk about that as well as not just marketing strategies, but the buy-in required at the level of the principal to actually court this patient demographic and not just post a rainbow flag on one's website. So I hope you enjoy today's episode with Ron Poole Dion. Mr. Poole Dion, Ron, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you. For, thank you very much for having me. So one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is because the LGBTQ plus patient demographic is really more than just one patient demographic. It's really an amalgam of different patient demographics. It's also a segment that many want to pursue, but some may not be equipped to. You run an organization called Men Having Babies, and I want to, in, in hearing about what that organization does, what others looking to serve the LGBTQ plus community can serve, particularly gay men can do. But in getting there, why don't we start with why the organization, even before the what, let's start with the why of what need was it that you saw that led you to forming men having babies in the first place? And I thank you for this question because really men having babies wasn't, didn't evolve or wasn't created out of some sort of brainstorming, what can I do or what can we do, but rather to fill a void. It was literally me noticing as when my husband and I, more than 20 years ago, were uh, thinking of creating a family through surrogacy and our twins from surrogacy are now 20 years old. But when we started our journey, there were very few resources out there. And at the LGBT Center in New York, in particular, there were support groups for people who wanted to pursue adoption, co-parenting, and even biological parenthood. But the biological parenthood support group was 
for lesbians who wanted to um, have a family through IUI. And there was just very few people who were interested or, or surrogacy was not really that, of course, widely practiced. So a few years later, after I stayed home with the kid for several years, I decided to volunteer at the center and create a group for people who uh, were interested in surrogacy. And here is really the issue. The issue is that this is about surrogacy more than it's about gay men insofar that it's a self-selection. Within the LGBT community, lesbians are even less likely than the general population to need surrogacy because even if they're suffering from infertility the same rate as the general population, they have two wombs to start with. And gay men can never just do IUI without at the very least traditional surrogacy. So, so it was a very clear distinction. If you're interested in surrogacy, you're you know, you're gay, if you're interested in IUI or lesbians were interested in IUI. So that was the void that we stepped into in the first place. And then after running this group of which, to which people thought there's not going to be any demand, but you know, it grew and grew, or it started in 2005. People thought there wasn't going to be any demand? Yeah. When, when I came to the Terry Bogus at the time, the head of uh, Center Kids, now it's called Center Families at the LGBT uh, Center in New York. She says, sure, we can split the biological parenting uh, group into two, one for uh, surrogacy, one for IUI, but I don't think you're going to have enough people. And of course, it, it was very successful from day one but and grew gradually. And then in 2000, leading to 2012, when we incorporated as a not-for-profit, we were thinking that we wanted to tackle the issue of the not just the high costs, and of course, they were not quite as high as they are even today, but also the fact that there was no financial assistance available for people like us. And that's the second void we moved into. And at that point, we needed to incorporate for that purpose as a separate organization. And that is that I literally found a dozen financial assistance organizations or initiatives out there for people who might, among other things, need surrogacy, but they were all organized for the purpose of people that were defined as infertile. And the medical definition of fertility always excluded us. So we didn't create an organization to exclude everybody else. We just created an organization that would fill the void since we were excluded from the other uh, sources for information and for financial assistance. So that's the void we moved into. So you moved into this void partly for partly because of the community that was very different from the other half just going into IUI, for example. And secondly, for the financial part of it, because other organizations exist to help with financial assistance for those that are medically infertile, that didn't include gay men. And so you formed this organization. And then how did it start to become the event-centric, community-centric tribe almost that it is today? I don't know if you use that word, but just looking from afar, it's kind of how I perceive it. It's definitely a community, and but it, of course, didn't start as such. And it's interesting because I always tell people that while our visible part 
to many people, of course, he's the silo of the organization that is organizing events. Although that's, you know, a funny thing happened, you know, the last year, as far as events are concerned. But, but of course, on, in a normal year until COVID, what people, of course, know us for is the very large events. And if you're listening to this and you're not familiar, in a normal year, we would have towards, you know, until COVID started in the last few years, would have about eight uh, conferences uh, year round. And these conferences have been often also described lovingly as a boot camp because they're not a scientific conference, they're not a you know professional conference. They're, it's a weekend where people literally don't ever get to look even at their phones and they're just immersed and taken step by step uh, through the process that would allow them to determine whether surrogacies for them are events or organization is not advocating for surrogacy. It's advocating for ethical surrogacy, but it's not saying you should do surrogacy. It's not saying you should become a parent. But if you're thinking of becoming a parent and you require surrogacy, and our events are not just exclusively for gay men, then this is a good opportunity to find out whether surrogacy is for you and whether and how to pursue it, whether you can afford it and how, and everything you need to know from uh, you know, the medical issues to budgeting you know, and other financial aspects of it and ethical, psycho, social issues, insurance, you name it. We have sessions for prospective single parents, people with HIV, HIV plus, et cetera. But those boot camps, so to speak, happen in different parts of the world. We have four really large events for usually about 300 plus intended parents in New York, San Francisco, Brussels, and Taipei for the for the Asian region. And we have also events, sometimes they alternate in Chicago, Tel Aviv, Florida, Texas, sometimes Canada, we've had various events. So that's that takes, of course, a lot of the energy and a lot of the, you know, that, that's a major part, of course, of our budget, et cetera. However, the other silo, GPAP, the Gay Parenting Assistance Program, is almost the reason for everything else. Of course, they're at least, you know, very synergetic. But it also takes a lot of our resources. We have three people working on it and between applications and, and case management. At any point in time, we have several dozen, mostly couples, but also singles who are getting full assistance from us, which means that they're getting not just some cash, but also pro bono services facilitated by now more than 100 providers, including many of the leading clinics and agencies in the field. And we basically super case manage their uh, journeys. They still have case managers at, at agencies and take them all the way until they become parents, even if they need additional contingency funds, as we call them, et cetera. So, so it's a lot of work. And to some extent, it's as big of an area of activity we have. And we also do advocacy. I want to talk about, I want to learn more about that advocacy, but I also want to learn about the strategic partners. You mentioned the providers and agencies that you work with. At what point did that start? And what did those strategic partnerships form into? It, it has been an, an evolution. And the nice thing that it's been an evolution, but it's also been a partnership. So I always, you know, start with a disclaimer, especially at our events, to explain to the prospective parents that we're not partnering with agencies and clinics in the sense that we are here to help them do business. We create the platform that allows them to reach out to the community. And we created a platform that allows them to even give back to the community. Well, isn't that uh, helping them do business? 
So as I said, we create a platform that allows them to reach out to the community. And that of course allows them to do business with the community. And we also created a, a platform that allows them to give back to the community, which is the GPAP and the membership benefit uh, I'll mention in a, in a minute. But so the evolution of that idea started with the fact that even before we were an organization, in order to provide the full spectrum of guidance and information that people needed at the LGBT center still, we had, of course, people from the professional community who came to speak. And then we say, you know, why don't we let them have a little table for their clinic or agency, et cetera. And then much later, they after the LBG, LGBT center say, why don't we have them pay, you know, for these tables? And when we created the organization, we when we incorporated the business model was supposedly a little bit Robin Hoodish. So we said, oh, we can charge a lot more than three hundred fifty dollars for those tables that the LGBT center was charging. Let's charge them more, and we'll give this money to people who can afford it. So it was just the first idea was just literally let's just. We didn't even think of salaries or overhead or anything. I was, of course, I volunteered as the only employee of the organization in the, in the beginning years. We said, okay, let's just charge money and give that to people. But then as much as we would have charged, even if we charge as much as we do today, because of course now it's been established, it's much larger and we can charge higher sponsorship fees, it wouldn't have gone that far. And it was somebody from the industry who told me, how about you also get pro bono services? And that was, you know, you know, when the light bulb, you know, went on and I said, yeah, we need the assistance we need has to be something we do in partnership with the professional community. And the first step we did was to create a questionnaire after some research where we sent to all the providers we already knew and asked them, what do they think the income threshold should be? What do they think that we should give assistance also to people that have kids or just people that don't have kids yet? Do they think that it should be other countries and what? So we got their input about a lot of the building blocks that went into creating our gay parenting assistance program. And God help me, we got a lot of their comments when it was time to write the contracts. So it was about a year and a half when those, because half of them are lawyers, as you know. And so thankfully, uh, so it started as, in that regard, it started as a partnership. And because a lot of them told me, and I totally believed them, they said, we want to help. You know, we do see those people can't afford it and we feel bad about it. It's just, it wasn't up to any one of them to create an assistance program. A lot of them said, I'm going to start the program to help people who can't afford it. They couldn't do it on their own. So it was our service, so to speak, to the professional community by saying, we'll create the platform, we'll create the infrastructure that allows you to do what you are, you know, stating as something that you feel, you know, dearly about as well. They couldn't do it because of the resources and bandwidth required? Yeah, it's just, it's just a simple, you know, organizational issue. You want, you don't need, you know, 200 assistance programs. You know, we have, you know, you, you need one. And it somebody had to step up and create it. And we did that. As I said, a lot of them see it as a service we provide because they really more than we wanted them to provide support and channel it to us, they were looking for a way to, to bring that to bear. So, so that's really how the, the, the part of the evolution of that, uh, member, of that uh, partnership was. And I would say another important part, and of course, 
I mean, so we have several concentric circles here, if you may. We have more than 100 providers now. We just passed that threshold a month or so ago that are giving through the Gay Parenting Assistance Program. And a program that came later, now we call the Membership Benefit Program, which is a discount program just for, that is wider. It's for anybody that's a member, a supporting member of uh, MHB. But then we have, of course, uh, providers who come just to our conferences. I would say two thirds of the providers who come to conferences are also part of GPAP and the Membership Benefit Program, but not all of them. All of them have to abide by the baseline protocols that are part of our ethical framework. Something that we also developed first and foremost with input from surrogates, but also from inputs, input from the professional community. So that's another layer of partnership here. And I would say another important layer of partnership or formalizing that in a more structured way was I think about five or six years ago when we created our advisory board. And we now have an advisory board that has several physicians on it, some of the agency owners, and also people from related fields. And that is an amazing, when created, we weren't even sure how successful it's going to be, but now those are approximately monthly meetings and a lot of input we've received from where to do our next conference to, you know, definitely ethical issues, as well as various other initiatives that we, we needed that kind of additional perspective for. Okay, so here's the skinny. Just as your fertility group has advantages over other groups, your competitors also possess advantages over your IVF center that you don't have access to yet. Now you can say their consolidation model won't work or their lab sucks or their doctor's crazy or that low cost model cuts quality or who would ever get their fertility testing done from a food truck, but many of them are onto something. If you're not maximizing your own natural strengths and adapting to what the new patient demographic is demanding, then they start to do more cycles where you are, get better rates from an insurance and vendors, take your patients and even your staff. We work to maximize those competitive advantages because Fertility Bridge is the only creative and business development firm that exclusively subspecializes in the fertility field. We have an entire team of people who help fertility centers attract and retain the right patients and nothing else for a living. So we can help only your competitors and then they have an even bigger advantage or we can help you too. Our initial consulting engagement is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's only 597 and we equip your partners and leadership with the foundation to leverage your competitive strengths, not mimicking someone else and not let your competitors have an unfair advantage. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever and there's a 100% money back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic, and I will see you and your partners on Zoom. So with regard to those different levels of partnership and involvement, all the way from being a sponsor at an event, at a booth, to being on the advisory board, I want to talk a little bit about the role of clinics and and how you interface with them and what the best among them do to serve not just the LGBTQ plus community, but specifically gay men. There's a lot of executives that listen to the show on the industry side. There's pharmacy owners, there's, there's definitely agency owners, but most of the people that listen to the show are practice owners or REIs. And so 
you probably have a, a range of involvement from those clinics. You mentioned some people sitting on the advisory board, but what do the best do to get involved in the community? Because it's one thing to sponsor something at an event. And then there's another thing to like actually be a participant. And I wonder if you can talk about that range. If you may, I want to take a little, you know, uh, side uh, trip here to explain, I think what some practice owners and people in the, especially in the medical field that are dealing with surrogacy and gay men might not always realize or articulate for many, it's what I'm going to say would be, would, would sound trivial, but it's really important to answer your question. And that is a significant, you know, you know, very principled difference between our community and the infertility, the medical infertility community, both of which a lot of the medical professionals serve at once. And that is that we, of course, get to this very differently. The infertile, medically infertile community, individuals, you can't even call them a community. They get to it as isolated individuals who've been escalating up, you know, the medical treatment, you know, ladder to the point that they also need somebody to help them carry the baby. And it's already after a lot of treatments, typically. Sometimes, of course, you have women that just know they don't have a womb, they, they'll need to have a surrogate. But one way or the other, it comes out of a, you know, of, of a medical condition and a sense of, you know, you need healing, you need, you know, assistance, medical assistance. They don't think that the first thing they need to go to do is to go to a very large hotel with a, with a few hundred other people and start chatting about it and go to the you know welcome reception and do this and do that, a happy hour. That's not what comes to mind. And that's not also the right way to bring, because we always say our conferences are open also for heterosexual infertile people and they don't come to conferences. Maybe we'll have, I don't know, five to 10% of the attendees are going to be, it's better by the way with virtual events, but you know, it's just not the same thing. We feel when, by the time gay men come to our events or become parent, become members of our organization or reach, you know, access our online resources, it's an act of empowerment. It's an act of, I'm going to take my fate in my own hands and I see a solution. I see, you know, a light at the end of this. It's not even a tunnel. It's a life affirming, life, you know, changing uh, event. And it is a very different mindset for doctors to have an initial consultation with patients that are like that. It's a very different, you know, introduction and a completely different set of needs. So, there are some practices who are very focused on this, for whom this would obviously sound trivial. By the time those practices are focusing and opening up and knowing how to address uh, the needs of this community, they also need to be opening up to much larger basin of pa patients. It's not going to be just your geographical area where people are going to be sent by their OBGYN or smaller fertility clinics. It's going to be people from all over. It's going to be people who are going to come from overseas. It's going to be people who don't always, you know, English is not their first language always. It's going to be people who are going to need to think about it in much more careful ways financially. So the financial consultation, there are people that are not eligible for insurance, even in the 13 or whatever states where there is IVF mandate. It seems that there's like 20 doctors or so that are getting 80% of the gay male cases. Is that really the case? If you talk about practices, not individual doctors, 
I would say probably closer to 30 or 40 uh, that are getting the 80%, but probably of them, they're probably even, you know, 20 that are even more active. Our view might be biased just because, you know, people who come to our you know, events and to part of our program tend to come back. So it means it's working for them. So we tend to see the same ones again and again. There must be probably out there some that I, I would say those are probably, well, I was going to say priced much higher, but the price differences in the clinic side are not as big as the price differences. The, the spectrum of costs is much broader on the agency side than it is on the clinic side. That's an, that's interesting. That's an interesting point. I want to explore that a little bit, but yeah. in the, with the distribution, the uneven distribution of gay male patients going to see certain clinics, and you mentioned it's a very different journey from those dealing with infertility as a medical diagnosis. And for that reason, many gay male couples do go the agency route first. Many clinics would love to disrupt that. They would love for them to come to the clinic first. And so that they have a bit more control of the funnel of of those patients coming through. It seems to be very uneven. And so what are those clinics, you know, if it is 30 or if it is 40 that are getting that 80, 90% of the gay male patients in the nation, what are they doing differently? First of all, I would say that from the population that comes through our organization, I don't think it is that universal. In fact, I don't wouldn't even I wouldn't even bet that it's half of them that are first going to the agency. It used to be that way. The people that are going to the agency first are typically the people that are not fully informed, that did not get the full training and advice that they get from our resources and our conferences. And in turn, they depend on the agencies to educate them. So, because that would be, you know, perhaps the assumption of a lot of the people, but by the way, not Europeans so much, but a lot of Americans probably would say, I need to look for a surrogacy agency. And if they didn't come to an educational event, they would think that's where they should get their information. And that that's the first step. People who come to our events, I know by now that, that fresh cycles, fresh transfers are by far not the norm anymore. In fact, that many times they're not even recommended in the case of surrogacy and that they would know that it many times makes a lot of sense to create uh, embryos and bank them while they're shopping around or even saving more money and can afford also the surrogate and the surrogacy agency. So I would say a lot of people nowadays understand that this there's a decoupling. They don't have to first go to the agency, make sure that the surrogate's ready and only then start the, the medical procedure. That is, you know, t- at least a 10 years old assumption. But, but yeah, I mean, people, if, you know, some doctors out there, practice out there are wondering, you know, what uh, needs to happen for them to be, you know, catering more to this uh, population. As I said, they need to be a lot more, I mean, I hate to use the word, but there's a lot more marketing involved here. And a lot of doctors don't like marketing. They don't like the, the concept of marketing. And the marketing here is doesn't have to be like, you know, mechanical, commercial type of marketing, but you need to have people in your practice who are, you know, re- responsible to reach out to the community and know how to do it. It's not enough even to just have a booth at a conference. You need to be able to 
know how to have a good list of your alumni and maybe have a group of your alumni be your spokespeople or, you know, spread the word that you're coming to Brussels next month. And, and you know, Dr. X is going to be the doctor that helped me is going to be in town and maybe do a little alumni event and post on social media about it. Things that I think a lot of the practices that are more infertility focused are not even equipped or geared or they're not, you know, on that wavelength. You know what I'm saying? Does the doctor have to do all of that marketing or can they put a rainbow flag on their website and have a physician liaison make a pamphlet and distribute it at some point? The doctor needs to be passionate about it. And that's another thing. You can't fake it. You, first of all, a lot of doctors just like it more. I don't know why, but I mean, this is to some extent, as I mentioned, you, you're not dealing with infertility, with, with loss, with, you know, uh, miscarriages. It's you just, you know, you have happy people coming to you, you provide them, you know, most of the times, as you know, it works on the first try, everybody's happy. So some people just like it better even. A lot of doctors describe it as, you know, fertility treatments to do very infertile because you're working with a very fertile egg donor with a, you know, very fertile, uh, very, you know, suitable surrogate. So it's to some extent, I'm sure that medically it's perhaps more gratifying. But you have to be passionate about third-party reproduction and you have to be passionate about the LGBT community and people would know that. You don't have to be gay. You don't have to be part of the community, but you have to have an understanding to, because I meant, I might've colored it too, you know, brightly, you know, it's not as if we don't come from hardships. It's not as if we don't come with further hardships waiting down the road for us, but, but you have to be, you have to understand this. And as I mentioned, you have to be doing some things that you wouldn't otherwise do because some things that would look tasteless for the infertility crowd would be necessary here. As I mentioned, events, you know, parties or something, or, you know, newsletters, things that might not always work or are necessary when you work with the infertility segment. Why is that necessary for for courting gay men as patients? Because as I said, I mean, first of all, it's not necessary. Of course, there's always going to be somebody, uh, we still have some people that say, you know, I live in Iowa, I need to find an Iowa clinic. And that's not true. You live in, there are some proximity considerations that we go over them when we do our training, but uh, a lot of it is the geographical considerations are very different here. But the reason to go back to your question, the reason it needs to be done differently is that our community is very sensitive to cues to know whether they will feel comfortable in your clinic. And so the first thing they're looking for is they don't want to be the only gay client you have. They don't want to be the only gay clients you ever had. They, you know, so that's a very, so, uh, which is why, by the way, being part of our gay pairing assistance program is a very real way for them to see that you're committed. You're not just putting a rainbow flag on your site, but also for a lot of us, it's, it is a, as I said, the act itself, the, the, the experience itself is something that they want to be positive. You know, for, I don't think that a lot of infertility patients think of this to be something that they want to put in a picture album later and go over, but we do. For us, you know, the first picture of, I'm getting goosebumps, the first picture in our kids' album, photo album, is there as embryos. You know, and it's something we celebrate. It's something, you know, you know, we like chatting with the people with the front, you know, desk people at the clinic. And, and it's all 
done as something that is more communal, more social, more open. We post on social media, you know, some people post on social media too much, you know, but they post every step of the way. It is, I think, I don't think that's the experience of the typical infertility patients. I think that's, at least in, in part, that's right in terms of the involvement that docs need to have some sort of authentic connection. I sometimes get prospects, and I can think of a couple in particular, prospects, not clients, that reached out in their clinics and they want to increase their same-sex patients and they don't have any desire or inclination to actually invest in the resource. And so essentially in, in, in providing the resources to actually make that initiative happen. And it's essentially saying, I just want more money. I just want more of that patient base. I'm not going to do anything to give them a reason to come to me. And it sounds like what you're seeing from those that have been really successful, because there's definitely, if not a Prado's distribution, then not an even distribution that they are doing a really good job of making that authentic connection. Exactly. How would they do that through an organization like yours? Because I think there are some people that, that we interact with uh, either clients of ours or people we've done consulting with, and they want to increase same sex patients. And one of the, the pieces of advice that we give them in strategy is getting involved with organizations like yours. So how, if they came to you and said, listen, Ron, I'm, I've never really made an effort for this patient demographic before, but I'd like to, how would you get them started? So in fact, I don't think there's a better way, <laughs> if, if I may say so myself, to do this than to get involved with Men and Babies. I would say first, come to one of our events, you know, attend one. And unless, of course, it's very urgent and they want to start yesterday, but I would say come and attend one and, and you'll get a good education. I mean, people who, I mean, some of our conferences, uh, arguably the provider, the, the exhibitors themselves can't sit in the plenary session because we're limited in space. But if you come, you can come always as what we call a professional attendee. So you can buy a ticket. It's it's more expensive, but you can buy a ticket to, it's a lot less expensive than sponsorship and just attend one of those. It'd be a great education for you. But I, but more, you know, practically, of course, being at our events provide you a lot of exposure. But I would say before you come to our events, have a section on your website for, I mean, not just with the rainbow flag, but for LGBT people, and more importantly about surrogacy. Of course, if you're not, if you're not doing a lot of third party to begin with, and uh, then of course you're not even a good match regardless of what you do. So you need to know what surrogacy is and you need to have a section on your website of surrogacy with mention of same-sex couples or just about same-sex couples separately. Of course, people will take a look at that you know, the very first time they go. If you don't mention surrogacy, why would they even come to you? And, and if you do, you should specifically make them feel welcome. Beware that most people use the same stock image of the gay couples with a kid. Try to be, you know, I, of course, us, we never use stock imagery at all. But, you know, really, if you have alumni and they, they're willing to use their photos, that's the best thing to do. Maybe have an event like a pride event or pride party at your clinic and invite some people with their babies, take some photos. You'd be surprised how much people would love them and would tag them themselves in it. The, the privacy issue is very different when it comes to gay couples. Of course, they might not want their kids' social security number posted 
uh, on social media, but they're going to be very happy to be part of, of your, to, to re really, you know, show how thankful they are by doing that. So, and then if you have that, you don't have to have special pricing. You don't have to have, you, you know, I don't know, you might have, you want to, I don't know. You don't even need, you know, something different in the clinic. I mean, it used to be that you needed to have something else in the sperm donation room, but you know, everybody has a cell phone now, as a smartphone now. So that's no longer a problem. So you don't need to do anything in the clinic, but you do need to think about the financial intake, you know, consultation. It is different. You don't want to, you know, throw at them some financial, you know, pamphlets that are not suitable on the one hand, on the other hand, you don't want to, you know, because one of the things I remember, you know, almost as a trauma is that, you know, the financial person at the Brigham and Women Hospital where we had our children created was basically telling me how much, you know, disadvantage compared to the people who have insurance pay, paying for their IVF. You know, that's not the kind of discussion you want to have with them. So, but I think so there's a little, not a maybe lot of, a little training for the So there might be some training. Counselors. I mean, luckily nowadays, you're probably not as likely to have uh, bigoted people on your staff, but you need to have buy-in from the staff and you don't want anybody to give anybody a cold sh shoulder. <laughs> but I would say really just two things, giving to the, you know, reaching out to the community's own institutions on the one hand, on the other hand, reaching out to your alumni. And those are the two major you know, ways to get to the, to this community. You must have, of course, if you're thinking about, it, you must have had at least one or two couples, maybe more that you already help reach out to them. You know, maybe one of them say, I'm going to come with you to the booth. You know, that's usually helpful. And you featuring them in testimonials is really important too, to make sure that, you know, if you, when everyone needs to have video testimonials and some can be done. Some can be done fairly cheaply if you want good ones and have more of a story than you'd spend more and invest more in video. But if, if this patient demographic is important to you, you have to have, you have to include them in the, the testimonials that you're doing. Um, they need and you might want to get an themselves. Instagram account or you might, you know, and not all clinics even have that, you know, and, and you'd be surprised how many people would check you out through social media and want to see who, who likes you and stuff like that. So some of it would take time. I'm not saying it's a, the other thing I would also advise against is, well, first of all, I would suggest have a conversation with us. We always have conversation and even training with providers who are participating for the first time. We literally give them a lot of tips, you know, from don't stand behind the table all the time, come in front of the table, engage with people, things like that. A lot of tips, even about virtual events. But, and as I mentioned before, try to reach out to the alumni community group, et cetera. But I would say the other word of caution, I would say, yes, come as an attendee if you want to just learn more, but don't come at a suboptimal participation level. That's not just not effective, it might be counterproductive. What am I saying? We have various levels of you know, representation at a conference and a clinic cannot be a bronze sponsor. They just can't. Those are the lawyers, those are the escrow services. And you don't get a breakout session. You don't get, you're not part of the consultation system. A lot of other things we do are, boot camps, our, you know, weekend long immersion surrogacy events have evolved with a lot of feedback from attendees, from providers. We have a whole system in place that allows people 
we, we have different experience for the research people who are always, you know, five, six, sometimes 10% of the attendees. Then we have the people who are one to two years uh, from uh, a journey. We have the people that are six months from a journey. We have the people that are actively in the journey. So we have different experience for them all. And we have so, you know, the people that are ready, they actually have consultations and sign contracts at the conference. The people who are, you know, just doing research, they're not gonna do that, but they're gonna benefit from other aspects of it. If you're coming and you're not listening to what would be a good level of engagement here to you, you might be sending the wrong signal, not, let alone not getting uh, the full uh, value of your participation. And always consider if you're not willing to give at least discounts to people with financial needs, you might be also sending the wrong message. Because so how, how does this all tie into advocacy and how can providers, agencies join in the advocacy that you all are a part of and to what extent should they? We very much involve and receive a lot of engagement from the professional community in our advocacy effort. First and foremost, started with what we call the framework for ethical surrogacy practices. Frankly, it started at the days when a lot of people were still going to India, then Nepal, then Thailand, then Mexico and other destinations. And we just needed to codify what were our, what now we call now baseline protocols that were our threshold conditions for including programs at our conferences. And, and what we did is we partnered, as I mentioned, with a group of surrogates who are until today, not necessarily the same individuals. We have a, a surrogate advisory committee and we had got a lot of input, as I mentioned, also from the professional community. And something I should have mentioned before, we're not a local organization anywhere. Everywhere we go, we have partnership with local LGBT family associations. So we have dozens of LGBT family associations that are partnering with us and especially take play a role in each uh, one of the locations where we arrive for an annual conference and also liaise with us with regards to the financial assistance program and other things throughout the year, throughout, throughout the year. So we had input from LGBT associations, from the professional community, from the surrogates, and we created a framework that includes principles which guide us through legislation initiatives. We have what we call the basic protocols. I mentioned before that those are the minimum conditions for providers to be part of our program and they need to sign off on them. And then we have best practices that go beyond that. So that was the initial round of advocacy. It led us, of course, also to be very involved in the legislation efforts, uh, mostly the one in New York, where we were very closely associated, you know, with the effort and, you know, the entire part, the entire section on compensation of the New York bill has been written in, with, with our input and reflects a lot of our values and our um, principles. More recently, we're focusing, we created something we call the Advocacy and Research Forum, because we realized that to some extent, we're the traveling circus. So first of all, we are also a terrific place for the, you know, for the professional community to just socialize. I mean, wherever we go, we have about 150 to sometimes 200 of, you know, people from the clinics, from the agencies, from the law firms, from the complementary services that are get, coming there. Some of them come as attendees, most of them are as exhibitors. So we said, we have this amazing group of people there with us that don't have a, a single other, you know, uh, forum where they, 
join as such. SRM is not quite this, and, and SEEDS is not quite this, ABA, ARTA, none of those are where all the people interested in surrogacy come together. And then we also have partnership with research, uh, researchers and research institutions. So we said, there's a lot of things happening with regards to advocacy and, and research. So first let's have this forum where we have in all of our, or at least most of our events such that we can share what's happening in the other locations such that everybody can hear about the latest research, etc. So that's one aspect of it. But then in every location, there was a little different aspect of, of advocacy they wanted to discuss. You know, San Francisco, they wanted to discuss you know, surrogacy in the lens of social justice. In, in Taiwan, it was mostly still from the LGBT acceptance prison. New York, one session was, of course, just making the case how you can do ethical surrogacy legally without really taking advantage of everybody, etc. And most recently, our focus is on trying to coordinate advocacy in several parallel tracks with the aim of eventually making surrogacy a lot more affordable. Because the reality is that surrogacy is still out of reach financially to most people. So almost as we finish the round of legal advances, now that surrogacy is legal almost in all the states in the United States, and first and foremost, the glaring omission of New York was rectified. Now we have to realize that's not enough. It's still not accessible financially, and we need to do something about it. So it's starting with how alongside with Resolve, we're advocating for a redefinition of infertility to include not just disease and conditions, but also a status. And this is actually now being advanced in California as a bill that could open up IVF if they, you know, even institute that IVF benefits, not just for heterosexual infertile people, but also for gay people, but also look at insurance issues, look at benefits at the workplace, look at possible initiative in now with the more favorable administration, perhaps changing taxation right now, heterosexual and gay people cannot write off any surrogacy related expenses. So all these things together alongside with interest-free loans, which is an initiative we have, and we can partner with uh, clinics, by the way, who want to provide interest-free loans. We can explain to them how we can do that to us. All these things together in a concentrated effort to chip away from the various cost aspects of it and to go beyond our financial assistance program that still only reaches several hundred couples and singles a year and not more. Ron, you've talked a lot about advocacy, about what clinics can do to better court gay male couples, about what they can better do to serve them. How would you like to conclude? And our audience isn't just practice owners. It is also agency owners and other folks from the field, whether it's in advocacy or service, how would you want, or, or getting involved with men having babies, how would you want to conclude? So first of all, come to our website and sign up uh, to be on our professional mailing list. We have advocacy events that are should be probably very interesting to a lot of people listening. One of them is about surrogates, stigma and stereotypes. That's coming up May 14th as part of our MHB West virtual conference. But also in New York, where we are resuming our in-person uh, conferences in September, we're gonna have conferences in uh, New York, then Chicago, Brussels, and Tel Aviv one each month, September, October, November, and December. The advocacy forum there, and maybe that could be some conclusion to our conversation, is going to be about 
the intensifying commercial atmosphere in this field and how we feel that's not that, you know, welcome. And there are bidding wars on surrogates. There are mergers and acquisitions and a lot of equity, marketplaces, bounties, referral fees, a lot of things that are happening that I think a lot of us are being drawn into. And maybe we can stop and say, do we really need all of those things? And what can we do to stay connected to what is common to all of us in the nonprofit you know, sector? And I know in this particular field that what makes it so unique is that the professionals in this field are also feeling that they have a mission. They're very mission-driven. How can we all get together and make sure that we're still mission-focused and not you know, be drawn to thinking about it exclusively as a business. Ron Poole, Diane, thank you so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.